0: Hello and welcome to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a weekly news analysis and history podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. This week we'll be continuing our introduction into what fascism is and what it isn't. Specifically this week we'll be talking about what fascism does. And by that I mean, what is fascism's function politically? Now this might sound like an interesting or weird question to be asking, especially since I am a scholar of fascism, I study it professionally, but the fact is that when most people think about what fascism is and what it does, they get very confused. Most people jump directly to thinking about or talking about the Holocaust or the kinds of political repression that we see in fully manifested fascist regimes, such as in the previous episode we noted, have only appeared twice in Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Most of the time, fascism serves as a part and only a part of a right wing coalition uh, that is a group of political parties, movements and tendencies that work together in order to maintain political power within a country. So in this episode, we'll be talking a little bit about some of these coalitions, what they have looked like and what fascism's purpose has been within them. Generically speaking, fascism does one of two things, or both of these things. Um, Fascism either provides symbols and rhetoric to unify the coalition, uh, or it provides muscle. By symbols and rhetoric, I mean everything from the Roman salute, which is generally known as the Nazi salute, but which originated supposedly in the Roman empire and was readopted by the Mussolini fascist movement as a symbol of its connection to Roman history. But there are other symbols and rhetorical flourishes that unite a lot of fascist movements. For example, many fascist movements are known by the color of the shirts that they wore. Uh, so you hear references to the blue shirts in Portugal, or the green shirts in France, or the black shirts in the United Kingdom. Uh, this is a tendency that emerges from following in the footsteps of Nazi Germany, although as a historian I have to note that some of these other movements predated the Nazis, um, but referring to them by the color of their shirts is following in this footstep. Pursuing A uniform appearance is part of what fascists do when they construct their militias and their in-groups. For an example, in the contemporary world, you might look at uh, skinhead groups in the United States or the United Kingdom, which have what? more or less a monster uniform for their gang. Or in the contemporary alt-right, we see this in the Proud Boys, who all wear a particular type of polo shirt with a particular type of coloration. It's a black shirt with yellow trim. Now mentioning the Proud Boys brings us to the second element that I was discussing about what fascism does generically in a coalition with other members of the right, and that is providing muscle. Fascists are used for voter suppression and partisan violence uh, that the state would otherwise not be able to get away with. Uh, Fascists essentially are doing the dirty work uh, that the apparatus of the state uh, would be more significantly criticized for or which might receive too much international attention or which is just too brazenly partisan. Uh, So this is things like directly attacking members of opposition parties, typically left parties, um, but also members of identitarian groups such as feminists, queer activists, and members of racial minorities or otherwise oppressed ethnic groups. Fascists, unlike the police, can more readily attack these groups directly and with political motivation. Uh, This isn't to suggest that the police does not actively suppress the left or feminists or does not actively oppress members of racial minorities. This is certainly the case in the United States and throughout much of the world. The difference here is that fascists can attack these people specifically as the enemies of the nation, as the enemies of a political coalition. Essentially, what fascists are doing with this violence is saying the quiet part out loud, uh, identifying these other groups from the left to feminists to racial minorities, not just as potential enemies of the state in a generic sense, like in a criminal, like in a criminal sense, but rather as potential alternate claimants to state power, as political partisan rivals. Now that we've talked a little bit about what some of these coalitions look like in the abstract, let's talk about a few particular examples. Now, the majority of these coalitions uh, continue to be under the table. Um, That is, we're not talking about official power sharing, such as in a parliamentary regime, or official incorporation into some sort of party apparatus. So the majority of fascist cooperation with conservative elites or other conservative institutions, such as the military or the police, uh, is something clandestine, something that is difficult to pin down until after the fact. Now, a perfect, para- perfect paradigmatic examples of this would be uh, the participation of extreme right organizations and people in what is known as the dirty wars um, in Argentina, Chile, Brazil, and throughout much of South America in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Now, these so-called dirty wars uh, were a series of partisan civil wars between the right wing and the left wing. Um, In which members of both sides were violent, but in which primarily we're looking at large groups of leftists and people associated with the left. Uh, Again, we're talking um, members of explicitly left-wing political organizations, um, such as political parties or unions. We're talking about students. We're talking about organized feminists. Uh, We're talking about members of religious or ethnic minorities in South and Central America, primarily indigenous people, um, who were murdered um, genocidally in some cases and in fewer numbers, more in a more targeted fashion, in others, um, by members of the right wing. Now an alternative to this kind of clandestine coalition uh, is a coalition that is official, uh, a very real and overt cooperation between various factions of the right wing. And a good example would be that of Spain under Francisco Franco. Now, after the Spanish Civil War and during the Spanish Civil War, um, there emerged a coalition among different right-wing political organizations. Um, there are three that are really important to consider here. The first is the military um, and the state apparatus surrounding the military. These people formed the majority part of the Spanish coalition, at least at the beginning in the 1930s and 40s. There were monarchists, um, traditional conservatives who supported the church above all else and wanted the Spanish king to return. And then there were the explicit fascists, um, the and other actually more fascist, more virulently right-wing organizations um, that emerged in Spain in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, uh, as they did throughout the world in this period of time. Now, during and immediately following the Civil War, as the military consolidated power and sought to actually govern Spain, rather than simply continue as a military junta, um, as would be the case uh, throughout Latin America later in the 20th century, Franco and his government sought to consolidate under what appeared to be civilian rule, and this meant creating a political party. Fortunately for them there already was a political party that could be a valuable member of this coalition, and that was the Spanish Falangist Party, um, which has a very complicated and intricate history of its own, which we might get to in a later podcast. The point here is that the fascists were a junior member of this coalition. Uh, What I mean by that is that they were not holding the reins of government. It was the military, the allies of Franco, and later on in Spanish history, Uh, a group of technocrats um, connected with particular lay Catholic organizations that actually ran government on a day-to-day basis. The political party of the phalangists provided a sort of ideological cover for this coalition, um, in the 1930s and 40s, it appeared to be holding the zeitgeist of much of the rest of Western world, uh, which is to say, the rise of fascism and the radical right. Later on, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it sort of became a little bit more of a milk toast one-party state. Another example of fascist coalitions, or rather, fascists participating in right-wing coalitions, can be found in the history of Germany, uh, that is, Nazi Germany. It's not typically discussed uh, when people talk about Nazism or fascism, but the fact is that the nazis first took power in germany not in a military coup or in some sort of uprising in fact hitler had been jailed prior to becoming chancellor um, in an attempted coup um, in german this is called a putsch instead of taking power in this fashion which people typically associate with fascism the nazis were voted into power they they won an election in germany in the early 1930s now germany was a parliament at the time of parliamentary democracy like it is today, and the Nazis did not win a majority of votes in that parliament, they won slightly over a third, about 30%. That meant that they needed to form, at least at first, a coalition with other right-wing political organizations in order to take power. Um, This was a time when the Nazis were a relatively new party, a fringe party. Um, an organization of people who had been the laughingstock of much of German politics for several decades uh, until their precipitous and disturbing rise to power. When this coalition was formed um, in the 1930s, Hitler was chosen as the Chancellor of Germany by its president, um, a man named von Hindenburg. Uh, The idea was that the Nazis would be able to be controlled or that they would be moderated by taking part in this coalition. Those of you who know anything about the history of Germany or World War II or the Holocaust know that this is not in fact what happened. Uh, After Hitler was invited to be the Chancellor of Germany as the head of this conservative coalition, he quickly consolidated power by passing a series of laws granting him and his party primacy in the German political system. Um, changing the way elections worked, uh, doing whatever he could to consolidate power in what was, at least on paper, a legal manner. And this is what is so particularly disturbing about fascists participating in coalition with right-wing organizations. Uh, Now the three examples that we talked about in this episode, um, clandestine participation in coalitions, participation as a junior member such as in Spain, and participation as the leading member of a coalition ultimately leading to fascist takeover of the entire political system. Um, The point here is that any time that fascists participate in a political coalition with other members of the right-wing Uh, there is a, you know, sort of chance that they could emerge as a leading or increasingly powerful member of that coalition. Uh, this is why, for example, this week when the AFD, a new right-wing political party that has emerged in Germany in the 20th century, uh, entered a coalition, or at least initially agreed to be a part of a coalition with other right-wing political groups, uh, including the Christian Democratic Union, the party of Angela Merkel, the current prime minister of Germany. Um, when they agreed to a coalition in a provincial government, in this case of Thuringia, uh, it made huge national news uh, in Germany and also made international news because the idea of a far-right political organization participating in a broad right-wing coalition in Germany specifically, but also in the world at large, carries with it the threat of actual fascist takeover of government. Thank you for listening to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a podcast I desperately wish nobody needed to listen to and that I didn't need to make. Um, Next week, we'll be talking a little bit more about some more contemporary examples, having given you all the tools that you need in order to understand what's going on now in the context of what happened in the past when fascism was particularly prevalent uh, back in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, so next week we'll be talking about the most prominent fascist organization in the United States right now, uh, the Patriot Prayer and the Proud Boys. And specifically, we'll be talking about them in the context of the role that they do currently play in the makeup of right wing coalitions in the United States and the role that they might play uh, if they were to become more powerful or if fascism were to become more palatable in our near future.